0: Hello, and welcome to ACS Chemical Biology's podcast for December 2012. I'm Jay Suarez, Managing Editor for The Journal. I encourage you to stop by our ACS Chemical Biology community site on the ACS network by visiting www.acscbcommunity.com. The current issue of ACS Chemical Biology, which features 17 research papers, includes a review article by Juan Pelta, on nanopore design and its impact on development of future biotechnologies and application in the medical field. Also in the current issue, Takanari Inoue and colleagues provide a new tool to manipulate intracellular localization of molecules in living cells. I have Takanari Inoue here on the phone to tell us more about the article. Hi, Takanari. Hi. So, first up, Chemically inducible heterodimerization has become a popular cell biology tool. Could you briefly describe the general mechanism by which these molecular probes work?
1: Sure. So chemically inducible heterodimerization, CID in short, is based on three players, two proteins, and one small molecule ligand. Typically speaking, a small molecule ligand binds to one target protein forming one-to-one stoichiometry. But in the case of CID, the small molecule ligand, which is usually called chemical dimerizer, binds to two target proteins at the same time. For example, rapamycin, which is probably the most prevailing chemical dimerizer, binds to a protein called FKBP and FRB, again at the same time. And based on this simple principle, we and others have made molecular probes to move around proteins of interest in living cells on the timescale of seconds. And if you can move proteins almost at your will in cells, then you can do many things, including manipulation of cell signaling. So, in short, a great advantage of the CID system is the speed, target specificity, and general applicability. And because of all these benefits, the CID has become influential as a cell biology tool.
0: Okay, then prior to your study, what were the biggest limitations to the application of this tool?
1: The biggest limitation in our view is its relatively high background effect that comes from overexpression of these molecular probes. These molecular probes typically consist of FKBP or FRB, and an enzyme of interest whose localization signal has been truncated. And we overexpress them in cells and add a chemical dimerizer, such as rapamycin, to induce translocation of these fusion proteins to a given intracellular location where its substrate exists. And even though this enzyme is not targeted to the site of action before addition of dimerizer, it can still freely diffuse inside cells and occasionally bump into its substrate, contributing to a background effect. And let me tell you, we made hundreds of CID molecular probes in the past in our lab, and most of them more or less had this background issue. So if we could resolve this issue, then we can resurrect all these probes and we can advance our understanding of cell signaling.
0: Okay, so given these limitations then, what does your latest paper in ACS Chemical Biology bring to the table?
1: So in order to circumvent this background issue, we first thought of sequestering them to a certain location in cells and release them and let them translocate to a predetermined location by adding a chemical dimerizer. One such place for sequestration would be inside the nucleus. However, it is generally slow for proteins to get out of the nucleus due to a selective transportation mechanism at nuclear pore complexes. So we started to think of not inside the compartment themselves, but the surface of the organelles. It's the cytosolic surface of organelles, which has much easier access to the cytosol and other organelles in the same cell. And targeting of molecular probes to these sites need to be strong enough to keep them there most of the time, but also it needs to be weak enough to come off from their location and reach other locations in cells upon addition of chemical dimerizer. So we came up with a lipid-binding domain, such as pH domain, from a protein called FAPP, or FAP. pH domain from FAP binds to PI4P, phosphatidyl inositol 4-phosphate, that mostly exists on Golgi apparatus. And we know that if you fuse a protein to this pH domain, we can sequester the fusion protein to the surface of Golgi apparatus. So what we did is basically make a fusion protein of FAP pH domain and the FKBP molecular probes to confine their localization to Golgi apparatus. And we're very happy to see the significantly reduced background activity using this pH domain fusion probes. And most importantly, this happened without compromising the speed of translocation induced by chemical dimerizers.
0: Yeah, and certainly a great tool for chemical biologists, and thanks for joining us today. Sure. Our second and final author for today is Jun Yin, Whose paper in the current issue of ACS Chemical Biology focused on studying the specificities of two enzymes for the C terminal sequence of ubiquitin. Hi, Jun. Hello. To start off with, then, what is the function of ubiquitin in the cell? Well, ubiquitin
2: is a very interesting molecule. So it has been compared with phosphate, and people call the word like protein version of the phosphate. So you can tell how broad and important this molecule is. So basically the function of it is to modify other proteins and by attaching the ubiquitin to other proteins is actually the interaction of the uh, cellular proteins with its partner proteins and also new interactions. So ubiquitin is first found as a protein degradation signal. So basically protein modified by ubiquitin can be recognized by the 26S proteasome for the degradation. Then uh, people just found there are so many functions of ubiquitin later on because it can control enzyme catalysis, it can control protein-protein interactions, protein-DNA interactions. So ubiquitin has been found in almost every aspect of cell biology.
0: Okay, so what is the role then of E1, E2, E3 enzymes in ubiquitin-dependent protein modification?
2: Yeah, so we call this as a cascade. So it's the E1, E2, E3 cascade. So it starts off like a tandem reaction with ubiquitin, and ubiquitin transfer through this cascade to its target proteins. So essentially these are the cascades for putting out ubiquitin to the cellular proteins. Now E3 enzymes they have different functions. So E1 is pretty much, you know, activate ubiquity, So it activates it and then uh, launches transfer through the cascade. And E two is more like a carrier. So it carries E1 to the E three. And then E3 determines the target protein of the ubiquitin modification. And beside that, you know, people found a lot of interesting features in terms of the regulation by the E1, E2, E3. So E2 also determines the topology of the ubiquitination chain on a set of proteins. Turns out, when ubiquitin put on the set of proteins, not only one ubiquitin put onto the specific side of a of proteins, but ubiquitin can form chains. And these chains, they can have a very complex topology in terms of, you know, different linkage between the ubiquitin within the chain. So basically, even though you have a number of ubiquitin attached to cellular proteins, it can totally adopt a different chain conformation and that can carry different type of signals.
0: Okay, so then what would you say were the most significant observations of your work recently published in ACS Chemical Biology?
2: So I think our discovery that we published in the upcoming manuscript is actually three-fold. We sort of uh, identify a mechanism. that record a tandem gating mechanism that controls ubiquitin flow through this E1, E2, E3 cascade. So the conventional thinking is that okay, so E1 is very specific for ubiquitin. it only recognizes the native C-terminal sequence, which is L R L R G G. And also, the the structure study based on crystal structures sort of you know support that view. But then uh, our experiment was fade display. So we actually profiled the C-terminal sequence of ubiquitin and to see what kind of sequence, alternative sequence of ubiquitin, non-native sequence that can be acted by E1. And we found a lot of non-native residues So E1 can actually accommodate at the C-terminal ubiquitin can be activated. So that sort of opened the door for this E1, E2, E3 cascade so specific for ubiquitin. Then we thought, okay, we did a serious experiment to test the specificity of either E1 or E2 or E3 with the C-terminus ubiquitin. Then we see, okay, so E2, E3 is also control the, the ubiquitin recognition. So that actually suggests a, a new mechanism that E2, E3 can recognize ubiquitin and it can feel the changes on ubiquitin and control its flow. So the second thing is that through this research, we uh, developed like face display approach to profile ubiquitin recognition by the E1 enzymes. And then potentially we can use this method to engineer the interface between ubiquitin and E1 so we can incorporate different mutants of ubiquitin, you know, through the cascade. And the third thing is that we found that these non-native sequence from these profiling studies at the c terminus ubiquitin, they're actually better than the ubiquitin itself, the native sequence of ubiquitin itself in terms of E1 activation. So the ramification of that is that uh, in the upcoming uh, manuscript that's going to be published soon by the Organic Letters, so we actually use these just the C-terminal short peptide, that's six or seven residue peptide that from the ACS chemical biology paper, we actually use that as a sorority of ubiquitin. So we show that these peptides can get transferred onto the E1, onto the E2, and onto the E3. And once these peptides got transferred, they actually block the ubiquitin from transfer through the cascade. So potentially, these peptides can be used to regulate protein modification by ubiquitin in the cell.
0: That sounds great, and thanks for joining us today. That's no problem. Thank you. To learn more about our authors in the manuscripts in the current issue, please see the Introducing Our Authors section on the web. This month, we feature five young scientists, Karen Boripanyo, Carl Brillet, Jennifer McCarthy, Michael Vetter, and Bo Zhao. Read this section and get a younger chemical biologist's perspective on their research. We continue to describe chembio glossary terms on the air. This month's key phrase is anamycin's, which are a family of natural products produced by the streptomyces species and are known active ingredients in the fish poison, fintrol. They are also known inhibitors of the mitochondrial electron transport chain by binding to cytochrome C oxidoreductase. Anamycins have significant antifungal, insecticidal, and nematocidal properties. For more information on anamycins, please refer to the manuscript by Wenjun Zong in the current issue. That's it for this month's show. Join us again next month for more ACS Chemical Biology highlights and interviews with our authors. To learn more about the journal, please visit us at www.acschemicalbiology.org. Thanks to all of you for listening.